thank you for tuning in to Growing Tech Fast, the condensed podcast in which conversations about growing SaaS startups are had with those who have grown them. Now, today, I'm uh, very lucky to be joined by um, Alejandro. It's Alejandro Rivas Bicud, who is the uh, founder and CEO um, of Usalytics. Alejandro, welcome and thank you for agreeing to, uh, to be a part of it. Thank you, Connor. Pleased to be here. Fantastic. Well, look, I always start off, Alejandro, by throwing over to our guest uh, and really twofold, allowing you to give us a bit of a background on yourself. And then also, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a bit more about Usalytics and uh, what it is that, that you're doing over there. Sure. Um, just briefly about myself, uh, born in San Francisco, I've uh, lived and worked in uh, uh, Europe, the US, Japan and been lucky enough to start ventures in all three of those areas. Um, some of them have been uh, quite successful as exits. Some of them have been what I call learning experiences. Um, and uh, voila, that's, uh, other than that, uh, my, my original background in terms of education, I, was, uh, I worked for a number of years as a nuclear engineer uh, did my in, my MBA at INSEAD in France. Uh, so that's a little bit of uh, my own personal background. Uh, Fantastic. Cool. Well, look, I, I love that. There's not many constants you haven't uh, scaled businesses on there, Alaska. I think it's probably more you have than you haven't. Uh, and I love that about learning experiences. I'm sure we'll talk, talk about that um, as well. But um, just talk to us a bit more about then currently obviously your 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 project and companies is Usalytics. Just want to tell us a bit more about what it is that Usalytics do and the problem that um, it solves. Sure. Um, you know, when talking about what we do, which is user experience optimization, I like to give real world examples and in the form of questions. So for example, right now we're using Zoom. Now the technology behind Zoom is very similar, if not identical, to what companies like GoToMeeting, WebEx, Skype have been doing for years, if not decades. So how come Zoom, a relative newcomer, is the king of the heap, which it clearly is? The answer is not pricing, not really strategy or you know which segments we're going for and anything like that it's basically user experience you could pose the same question in multiple instances you know companies like netflix uh companies like apple why is apple a trillion dollar market cap a two trillion dollar market cap company very clearly user experience so what we do at userlytics is enable companies to do user experience optimization in a very rapid, agile, and iterative fashion. And I like to use the example of the toothbrush. Um, imagine before the invention of the toothbrush, there were dentists. There were basically people with, you know, things to pull out a tooth once your teeth got into that stage where you needed it to be pulled out. In the same way, companies have had services to uh, improve the usability and user experiences of their websites, their apps, their, and other products. Uh, but 
but they've adopted those on a, you know, when an emergency comes, you know, I'll, I'll take my patient to the emergency care and get them operated and voila. But what we enable is what the toothbrush enables, a constant cleaning and improving and tweaking of the user experience. How do we do that? We enable any company to, in a matter of minutes, set up a test, uh, you know, like, for example, imagine you're trying to reserve a flight from Paris to Bangkok, uh, go to the following site, show us what you would do, et cetera. And while the participants are doing that, they're being recorded, both their screen, their webcam, in a picture-in-picture -picture view, and their audio. So they're explaining, wow, I'm trying to find this button. I can't find it. Where is this? So you, as a client, within hours, can receive these videos, as well as a bunch of quantitative data, showing you where there are problems on your website, which you may know already through your Google Analytics or whatever, but more importantly, why the problem exists. Where are they tripping over the proverbial rug in the room? Uh, so that's what we enable companies to do, as I said, in a very agile, fast, and uh, you know, we, 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 we team that up, not just with the software, but with a global panel of, of almost 1 million participants around the world that you can filter by different demographics and et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, I, I gave you a really extended uh, answer there. No, it's good. I love the uh, analogy of, uh, of the toothbrush. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, so I, I guess Alejandro, you know, this, um, you know, user optimization, user experience, it sounds as if what you're trying to put across and the problem you're solving, it's, it's one that's critical for all businesses, right? In, in this very day and age, I, I'd be interested to hear actually if you feel that that's actually evolved over the last, you know, five, 10 years, like has it become more and more important? Do you th feel? Totally, totally. When we started out, uh, we, we launched our company in 2009 and, uh, you know, we would go to fairs and events and everybody thought, ah, oh, that's cool. So it was very easy to get people to look at our technology. What was difficult was to get them to buy. And so we struggled through, you know, what I like to call all startups kind of go through this, right? They have cycles, you know, the beginning, everybody's, you know, lots of energy, hope, enthusiasm. <laughs> then you go through the valley of the shadow of death. And, uh, and if you survive that, then you're in nirvana. Uh, so we, we went through the wilderness for a number of years there where we would show our technology to companies and they, you know, ah, they, that's very cool. That's very interesting. But they didn't have the budget. They understood the importance. The people we were talking to, you know, certain product managers, user experience researchers, they understood the importance of this, but their upper echelon management did not. And this just goes to show how important timing is in startups, because you know, at that time we came very close to just you know throwing, throwing up our hands and saying, okay, let's move on to something else. Uh, fortunately, we did not. And at a certain moment, around 2015, more or less, the market really exploded, at least in English-speaking countries. In, in non-English-speaking countries, it's starting to right now. And, and what I think happened is the CEOs of large corporates got tired of you know, waking up in the morning, looking at the newspaper, Slack worth billions of dollars. Hey, what's this Slack thing? Oh, it's, uh, it's a messaging app. The messaging app, billions of dollars? Yeah, well, it's got a great user experience. Huh, 
what are we doing about user experience? And, you know, when that kind of realization filtered through, all of a sudden, you know, very large corporates that had maybe one or two people dedicated to user experience research, you know, went to 20 people and, and big budgets and authority and visibility and influence, et cetera. Nice. I like it. It's kind of that explosion around six years ago then, which just seems to be the moment <clears throat> continuing on that upward trajectory and an upward curve. Um, I loved what you said, Alejandro, as well about the life cycle of startups. It's almost, it's always darkest before the dawn, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I'm sure everyone can relate to that who's been in that, that startup world. Um, but I guess I just want to draw on something you said, because I know that this is something that you feel is really important. So rather than just brush over, I want to give you a chance to unpack it a bit more, which is around timing and how important and crucial that can be in setting up, you know, what will either be a successful or an unsuccessful venture. Just talk to me a bit more around timing, if you will. Right. And it's a, it's a key issue and, and it's a difficult one because when we launch a company, it may be that that concept is never going to work. You know, it may be, you know, it may be that it's not fixing a pain point. Uh, you know, there's just, it's a nice to have, or there's just not a big enough market to justify the acquisition cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it may also be just a matter of timing. And here's an example. The iPad, great product, right? Billion dollar market, huge, tons of people using them, tablets, the iPad, et cetera. Everybody thinks this was invented by Steve Jobs after the iPhone circa 2009 or thereabouts. Yeah. Actually, it was invented by Apple, but not by Steve Jobs. Earlier, it was called the Newton in the 90s. But here's the thing. It was exactly the same concept. It was a tablet that had a computer that you were going to do all kinds of stuff. But there were a few missing elements in the technological ecosystem at that point in time. The technology for swiping and interacting with screens with your fingers, that was not yet uh, ready for prime time. Uh, connectivity via wireless was not yet ready for prime time. So there were a number of things that had to fall in place. So even though you had a visionary with a product that there was a compelling need for that, it failed. And then 10, 15 years later, whatever it was, or 20, I don't remember, it succeeded. Same product, because the technological underpinnings had uh, appeared. So, you know, it's for an entrepreneur, it's difficult to evaluate. Are things difficult right now because timing is off and therefore I should wait? Or is it just that this is never going to work? And, that, and that's a very difficult call uh, to make. But, um, you know, one thing I would recommend to any entrepreneur is to think about something that Bill Gates once said. Bill, Bill Gates said, people overestimate the impact of technological changes in the short term and underestimate them in the long term. And I think that's very true. But more importantly, I think it's also very true in terms of what we as an entrepreneurs do. We expect that all the activities and investments that we're doing in sales and marketing, lead generation, branding, awareness, education, et cetera, are going to have a huge impact from day one. 
very rarely will that be the case. Uh, and then, you know, we may give up not realizing that we have been seeding and seeding and seeding. And all of a sudden, when everything kind of comes into place, it can take off exponentially. Uh, so I, I think the same rule applies in a certain way to what we do as entrepreneurs. Cool. I love that quotation from Bill Gates. You shared that with me the other week and it really, really resonated. And I think it's really important, as you said, to talk about the, the importance of timing and how it's a hard call as an entrepreneur to really ascertain whether this is the wrong time or the wrong idea, right? And know what to do. But let's just kind of move on for that. So let's say we've we've got the startup in its early phase. Timing is um, is is okay. It's good. It's looking like things are getting off the ground now. Something we've discussed, Alejandro, is the then I guess goal of entrepreneurs often is to run to VCs, right? To try and secure capital and funding. Uh, we had a really interesting conversation on this. And I'd love for you to share a bit from your perspective around working capital and, and, and what options are open to entrepreneurs um, compared to maybe, you know, an alternative, I guess, to, to the VC route. Yeah, that's a great, um, great question. So, uh, Oftentimes, entrepreneurs think of raising capital as the end goal, you know, and when they raise the capital, they think, that's it, I'm done, you know, 90% <laughs> of my job is done, you know. And the thing is, first of all, venture capital is the most expensive form of finance, period. There is nothing more expensive. A VC expects to get at least 10x, maybe 20, 30x. What that translates to is an annual interest rate in terms of cost of equity of, you know, 1,000%, 2,000%, 3,000%. It's not your typical bank loan. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, and I don't want to disparage venture capitalists, uh, they're, they're great and they perform an absolutely vital function. I'm not trying to call them loan sharks or anything, but the reality is that the cost of the very high risk that they take on is a very high rate of return. So if you can avoid taking capital from external you know, venture capitalists, angels, investors, etc. You should try to. That's A. B, if you can't, you should try to, you know, wait as long as possible so that your company is more developed and it's worth more and, you know, the terms are better for you. So you may say, well, wait a second, that's easy to say, but, you know, how do you do that? No bank is going to lend us at our stage of development, uh, which uh, is, of course, true. It's impossible at that stage uh largely to get money from banks sometimes you can get you know subsidies and things depending upon what country you're operating in but you know very difficult but there is a source of finance that most on well i'm going to say that many entrepreneurs overlook which is their own clients so let's imagine that you've got a product that has a gross margin of you know, in a SaaS world, you would want to have something 70 or 80%, but you know, it might be 70 or 80%, it might be 50%, it might be 10%, whatever it is, it's X percent. 
What if you were to go to your clients and say, you know what? If you pay me up front for the rest of the year, I will sacrifice my margins. And so reduce the price if, it's, if you have a 70 or 80% gross margin by two or three times. That's a trade-off you should be willing to do because, by the way, if you do that, your cost of capital there is essentially 0% versus 2,000 or 3,000% with a VC. And um, you should even be willing to sell it at a loss because it's still a cheaper interest rate than what you're going to get from a venture capitalist. And here's the thing. If you're growing, and this is a key caveat here, if you're growing, the more sales you have, the more capital you'll get if you adopt this strategy of using working capital as your essential finance mechanism. And I would encourage all entrepreneurs to thoroughly explore that route when they're thinking about their pricing model to see if at least in the initial stages of development of the company, they can use their customers as a source of finance. And they don't have to tell their customers that they're doing that. You know, they can just say, Hey, because, because you're, you know, Wells Fargo, I'm going to give you uh, you know, a special deal or, you know, they, they can dress it up in a different way. But at the end of the day, that's what you should be looking for. Pay your suppliers with as lengthy terms as possible. And you can pay them more. By the way, the same logic applies. You should be willing to pay more to your suppliers if they give you better payment terms. Because it's all about working capital. The difference between accounts receivable and accounts payable. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. I think, Mike, it's really interesting because we get a lot of folks who write into us Alejandro and it's often about VC funding, how do we raise VC funding? <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it offers a really interesting different perspective. Out of interest, Alejandro, is that a model that you've successfully used with your own ventures? I have when, I, when I've been able to. It's always yeah. my goal when looking at the pricing model to see can we structure this in a way where we get... Uh, if you think about a, a supermarket, a, a large hypermarché, right? Um, they're being paid upfront by their customers and they're paying their suppliers three months basis. Some of them six months or even 12 months basis. They, they strike hard bargains. So if you think about it, a supermarket is a bank. They're getting deposits and, you know, and they're, and they're investing that money somewhere and getting a, a rate of return, whatever, even if it's just 1%, doesn't matter. They're not paying anything for that float of three months, six months, 12 months. They're not paying anything. That's a great financial advantage to have if you're growing quickly, because if you double your sales, you're doubling the amount of capital available to you. Voila, without any bank loans, without any uh, VC investment, nothing. Perfect. Ah, uh, so supermarket is like a bank. Uh, I love that. <laughs> cool. So, um, just kind of progressing then to 
I guess further on within the, the startup life cycle, you kind of progress through timing, through getting capital. Um, now, as you mentioned at the start, Andrew, you've been through a number of you know mergers, acquisitions, exits, and you reference that. Of course, you've ran with businesses and done this through Japan, you know, Europe, the US. Something I'm really interested in. I've um, only ever really worked in the UK. I do a lot of business in the US, but again, culturally quite similar. Um, I'm really interested. How did you find it kind of running a business say in Japan versus Europe versus the US? Was there any difference? Did you have to operate differently? Yeah, just talk to us a bit around that and, and, and what difference the geography may be made in, in, in scaling these companies. Yeah, um, well, Japan, very, very different. No question. Um, just to give you an example of, of some of the differences in corporate culture, um, you know, once had an employee in Japan come to me and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm getting married. Great. Congratulations. No, 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 no. I'm getting married. I need you to help me find a wife. And that was an expectation of his as a kind of standard uh, employer, I'm not going to say service, but, you know, uh, assistance, if you will. Uh, and, and companies will then, you know, hire people with a, in expectations of trying to create conditions for employees to, you know, meet and, 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 and tie the knot. So that, you know, taking care of employees in, in a very familial way is an expectation of small, medium, and large companies, or at least it was when I worked there, which is some time ago. Things may have changed. I don't know. Um, regarding Europe and the U.S., um, one thing that makes obviously more difficult in, in, in Europe than in the U.S. is that, uh, you know, there's different languages and, you know, uh, if I want to hire somebody in Germany, I mean, think about, you know, Zoom and remote working, right? Remote working is here to stay. We're all going to be doing it forever. But if I want to hire somebody from Germany, I got to create a German entity. You know, if I'm in the U.S. and I'm in Florida and I want to hire somebody in Utah, I don't have to create a, a, a company in Utah. That's crazy, right? So that there's a lot of barriers of that type that make it more difficult to just scale. And, you know, with remote working, especially, it would be great for European companies to make that process simpler. It, it would certainly, you know, uh, because then you could get, you know, different types of, of people with different skill sets all over Europe. Right, right now, you're kind of more constrained and you have to focus. I mean, we work around those barriers anyway, but... Um, then in the U.S., you know, um, one of the big difficulties is healthcare, which is just insane. Uh, and, uh, you know, that fortunately in Europe is taken care of. You don't have to worry about it, you know, uh, whereas you have to worry about it with your employees in the U.S. And, and even if you get them a healthcare plan, it's still, you know, apart from being incredibly expensive uh, for either the employee or the company or both, uh, it doesn't, you know, really protect all that much from uh, incredibly high medical bills. So that's one, you know, downside to, you know, doing it in the U.S. I don't know, these are just anecdotal examples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
course. Uh, I know your, your current company, Usalytics, you've got presence in the US and also you've got presence in Europe, right? Is it Spain? Uh, also Asia Pac. We've, Asia we've Pac got well. uh, in, in Taiwan and Philippines and, and yes, in, in Europe and, and the United States. Cool. And just very briefly um, for our listeners, I know this is often important to, <clears throat> to CEOs, to sales leaders looking to open up new territories. How do you go about that? I mean, it's always obviously unique and presents its own challenges, but what do you think is most important to consider when you're you know, thinking about international expansion and, and really going to market in a brand new territory you've never done business in before? Well, I would say that using the, the startup approach, the MVP approach, is probably a good template uh, because it's always difficult to know uh, what's going to work, if it's going to work, if the timing is right. So I would urge people to use a de minimis approach and just, you know, go in there, test the waters with that. You know, I, I would argue against going and say, okay, well, I'm going to hire a managing director of this country and I'm going to do this. I'm going to, no, no, no. I, especially nowadays where you can do things remotely so much easier than before. I would go with that approach first, you know, for example, localization. Uh, you may think, okay, well, we should localize our public website to the local language. Uh, we did that with some of the countries that we launched in. Um, and we also localized, you know, the old, you know, our participant experience, all that kind of stuff. What we found out was that the participant experience and all that being localized, great asset. But the public website, it was actually not necessary. And it was even counterproductive because our target customer, the key terms they used in the industry were English the search terms they use in Google search were English, you know, so it made actually no sense in localizing the, the, the public website. So, you know, it's taking small baby steps and checking what you're doing before investing a lot of money into it until you really understand what's the best approach. Yeah. I think it's really important. Just small, small baby steps. Uh, I think was the, the key takeaway from that. Um, Cool. Well, look, coming coming up to to the end of time now, Andrew. But what I wanted to finish on and ask you is, you know, you, you're a guy who's who's helped scale a lot of companies towards different you know, exits, mergers, etc. Over the years, across you know a, a number of different countries. Now, there's going to be people just setting out on that entrepreneurial journey who are listening to our podcast. Really interested to hear what key bits of advice you would give to young new entrepreneurs who are, you know, trying to get off the ground with maybe their first, uh, you know, or second SaaS startup venture. Sure. Um, so, well, there's a perennial one that always is offered as advice, which I think is, is very valid, you know, to steer away from premature scaling, you know, don't, go hire a bunch of people until you really, really know there's a pain point to be solved, know that your solution solves it, know how much you can sell it at, you know, there's a market for, you know, all those things before you even consider spending a lot of money. Um, the second thing, which again, you know, everybody says this, but it's, it's worth repeating because it's very true. The importance of human capital. Um, 
you know, getting the right people. Sometimes entrepreneurs like to get friends or friends and family involved because, you know, they're their friends. They, they like being with them. And uh, it's, you know, the problem with that is they may not be the right people for that venture. Uh, um, I mean, obviously, if you are friends and you're all talented, like, a, you know, the Beatles, <laughs> yeah. you know, then it's great. Then it's perfect. I mean, that's, it, it cannot be perfecter than that. But, um, you know, I, I remember a CEO of a startup once telling me years ago that he spent, and this was quite a big company by that time, he spent 40 or 50% of his time hiring people. And I thought, wow, that's a huge investment of time. But, you know, I, he was right. That's probably, you know, the single most important thing he, an entrepreneur founder can do is hire the right people. And to hire the right persons, you've got to interview tons of people before you get you know, that gem that you say, oh my God, this is great. And, and the second thing, which is part of that, is building the right corporate culture. In corporate culture, every company is unique, uh, but, you know, I, I, I very much believe in the old adage, corporate culture eats strategy for breakfast. Totally agree with that statement. Um, and, um, you know, I, I focus a lot of my time on trying to build. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes Usalytics successful is our, our customer service. It's a, it's a soft advantage, if you will. But, you know, in all the ratings we receive about our apps, about our service, et cetera, we, we, we receive very good ones. And, and they always mention customer service. And I think part of the reason is that from the early days, all of us at any position in the company, we've led by example in terms of, you know, re, you know going that extra mile for the customer. And, and that's built up a corporate culture around that. So there are lots of things like that, that, you know, you, you build up a corporate culture because at the end of the day, the people that you hire are then going to be hiring other people. So you want them to be star players so that they will also hire star players and, you know, the cycle perpetuates itself. Thank you. Yeah, it's really important. It's like getting, getting the foundations. And I think um, something someone once shared with me that um, a CEO had shared with him was that essentially it's about finding the best people and keeping the best people. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> which yeah, is not yeah. simple to do but yeah no not i think that that's do. uh <laughs> no but look alejandro thank you so much for your time today it's been really really um good to be able to draw on all of your knowledge background and insight so i really really um, appreciate it so thank you very much for joining us thank you connor really uh, enjoyed it and uh wish the best to all your listeners perfect thanks alejandro and thank you to our listeners we'll see you again soon